Our scripture today is from Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jenny. I'm going to throw a picture up to start today. And uh, this is a wedding day picture. Some of you know these people. And don't they look good? I mean, come on. Throw the 90s glasses out of the way. Otherwise, they look pretty good. And there's a, there's a real temptation for, for me, looking back on that couple, to want to go back. And if I could go back, there's a temptation on one hand to say, man, as good as you look today, it's all down the hill from here. <laughs> on one hand, right? I mean, I'm never gonna be again that waist size. Uh, Amy has done a lot better than me in that, that area. I, I'm never again going to have ears that don't have hair growing out of somewhere, and it's always something new. I'm never going to, again, have a two-seat sports car. The minivan is coming, I would tell these people, and that was a crush and a blow to the heart that day that that hunk of metal arrived in the driveway. And on one hand, I would say it's all downhill from there, but on the other hand, you, you and I know no, 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 that's not the case at all. Because these people have some things in store for them that they can't even imagine. And it's gonna be great. What we're talking about is what happy couples know. And uh, the first week we looked at this. We started that with this thought that you never marry the right person. You're always going to have flaws. Everyone who exchanges rings has issues. And so what do we do about that? Well, we do for our spouse what Jesus did for the church, and we give ourselves up for our spouse. Then we talked about what happy couples know is that self-centeredness is the cancer of every marriage. And so to cut out the cancer, what happy couples do is that they treat their own self-centeredness as more serious than their spouses, okay? And then last week we talked about real love demands the permanence of a promise. And so we talked about the vows and how happy couples live out their vows to each other by learning how to love their spouse in the language that they understand the best because different people require different kinds of love and happy people, happy couples have figured that out. So today, as we wrap up this study, I want to do a little Bible study and I want to put that verse that we, from last week that we studied up on the screen because we skipped over a really big thought and it's highlighted, it's the very first word. It's, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, and some of you know the phrase, anytime you come across a therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what it is therefore. Yes, right. And so why, in, why is the there for there? Um, and to answer that, we have to go back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2. 
And in Genesis 1 and 2, God is creating everything. He's creating light and dark. He's creating the earth. He's creating the planets. He's creating the stars. He's creating the animals. He's creating uh, fish in the seas, creating plants and vegetation. After everything he creates, he says, it is good. Then he comes to the pinnacle of his creation. He creates man. And he says, it is very good until it's not. Um, we come to Genesis 2.18, and here's what God says. He says, it is not good. For the very first time in all of creation, there's something that's not quite right. What is it? It is that this man should not be alone. That's not good. The man is alone. We can't have that. Now, why is that the case? And probably the answer is back up in chapter 1, verse 26. It's a little obscure phrase where God is creating and God says, hey, let us make man in our own image. And the very first question that pops into your mind when you read that question is, what? Who's us? Who's God talking to? Is he talking to the angels? That has been um, kind of given over as evidence uh, uh, of angels helping create, but there's no, there's no evidence of that. Angels didn't create uh, anything. And so what theologians have for centuries have done when they've pointed to this verse is that they have said, this is one God who is three different personalities. So in this let us, we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, if you do some more research in Genesis chapter one, even in verses one, two, and three, you have God, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Son. You have the architect, you have the engineer, and you have the builder of all creation. And these separate personalities are one personality called God who know each other, have always been with each other, uh, other and love each other. And God exists in this relationship. And so if he creates man in his image, right, then it follows that man will be designed for relationship as well. But the problem is Adam is alone. There's nobody for him. And so his aloneness is not good. So go back to chapter two, verse 18, and God says, I will give him a helper. That's what the English word says. It really is not, uh, it's way more than that. It's kind of a companion. Um, it is, it means God gave Adam a friend. That's what it means. God brings this friend to Adam uh, called Eve. And she is like him, but she is not like him at all. And he responds this way when he sees her for the first time. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And some people have taken his response and they've paraphrased it and they've put it this way, that what Adam really said was this, meeting you fills a void in me. Meeting you fills a void in me. And let me suggest that that's what friendship is. If you have a good friend, then you have somebody who is filling a void in your life, even if you're just two fingers uh, with faces drawn on them. Uh, friendship is 
constancy. It's a witness. Friends are people who are always there for you. Friendship is transparency. There is a realness to friendship because friends always let you in. They always want to talk about what is really important to you. Friendship is sympathy. Sympathy is just a fancy word for people having the common passions or they are like, there's a likeness to friendship. And so there's a common insight. There's a common interest. It's uh, what C.S. Lewis said. It's two people saying to each other, oh, you too? That's friendship, okay? Oh, you like tennis too. Oh, awesome. And that's friendship. And in Eve, Adam now has all of those things. He has somebody to be with. He has somebody to lay his heart out to, someone to share his life with. He has this friend his heart had been seeking, but he hadn't been able to find it anywhere else. And Eve has the same thing in Adam. The writer in Proverbs 2 speaks of one spouse as being a best friend or a confident, a special confidant. And that's what Adam and Eve are to each other. They are best friends. And so God looks at what he's created He sees that aloneness isn't good for Adam. He says, I'm in relationship, and so everything that I create should be in relationship. And so here's Eve to be his best friend, and he will be her best friend, and they'll be with each other. They will be real with each other. They will share life together, and that Adam and Eve model becomes the model for the rest of mankind for their time on earth. And so if you choose to be married, the essence of marriage is the marriage vow, the promise that you will be with each other forever. That's what we talked about last week. But the purpose of marriage is companionship, companionship. And that's the therefore. That's why, therefore, for this reason, men and women who come after Adam and Eve from now on will come together and they will leave their childhood house and they will come together, they will unite together to find friendship in this gift of marriage to such a degree that they become one flesh, they become like one person. And so here's what happy couples know. The purpose of the marriage vow is for this person to be your best friend. The purpose of the marriage vow is to be this person, to be your best friend. Now, along with that, really quickly, we need to go back to Ephesians chapter five and do a little study there because Paul starts this way, husbands love your wives. And Paul was writing to people who had a very pagan background. It wasn't their fault. That's just how they grew up. And the, the idea of marriage in this pagan environment was this, you get married because it's a social transaction that you have to do. You have to maintain your social status somehow, and so you marry well into another good family so that you will preserve your place and so that you will preserve your wealth and so that you will sustain your life, and hopefully you'll improve all of those things. And here comes Paul, and he writes Ephesians chapter five, and he gives them an astonishing version of what marriage could be. It's a vision of what marriage should be. It, he says, marriage can be so much more than just a social transaction. The main goal of marriage isn't status and stability. Now, we tend to look at people like that in the first century, and we look down our noses and we say, oh, I am so glad that we are past that. I am so glad that we don't marry 
for social status and for wealth and for more land. I mean, we would never do that. Do you hear the sarcasm in my voice? Because the truth today is that marriage is today not about land and wealth, but it's about romantic and emotional and individual happiness. It's about how can I be fulfilled in our culture? It's about how can I improve my status, not by wealth and land, but by emotional and happiness. And is that any different from the people back in the first century? No, no it's not. Our cultural idea of marriage is also just as much a power play as theirs. It's just a different kind. It's not land and wealth, but it's emotional, romantic, and individual fulfillment. And so Paul comes to them, and that's why I needed to tell you that. He comes to us today, and he says, marriage can be so much more than that. There is an original vision to marriage that I wanna point out here. And to do it, I need to point you to Jesus. I want you to look at his sacrificial love for his bride, which is the church, which is us. And then he says, I'm gonna go further and I'm gonna tell you why he gave himself up for the church, for you. And it's in verse 26 and 27. What's the goal? Jesus came to do what? Look at the words. To sanctify the church, to cleanse the church, to, next slide, to present the church in splendor, to present the church so that it was without spot or wrinkle, to present the church so that it's holy and without blemish. That's the goal that Jesus has for the church. And so everything he does moves us towards that. The cross was so that we could be made glorious, to clean us up, to wash the filth of sin away. The spilling of his blood was to make us glorious, to cover our hearts and warts and blemishes and make us white as snow, like the old hymn says in God's sight. The giving of the Holy Spirit then is to remake us into the glorious creatures that we are already uh, seen as in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done. And so slowly but surely, you and I are being remade into something new, something splendid, something glorious. Jesus didn't die for us because we were lovely. Jesus died for us to make us lovely. And I need you to understand what Paul is saying and the implication for marriage here. He says, Jesus' redemptive work, making the church better, is now going to be the model for what marriage should be about. And so on one hand, they're not just social transactions to get more land. On the other, they're not just a delivery system for emotional stability or happiness. Marriage, can it bring those things? Of course it can bring those things, but those are benefits that come out of the real goal of marriage, which is exactly what Jesus exampled for us when he gave himself to make the church better. And Paul says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives. If I were to ask you right now, what is your marriage for? What are you going, where are you going with it? Why do you wear the rings that you wear? What would your answer be? What's the goal for your marriage? Some answers in our culture might be, well, I have material goals or I have financial goals or sexual fulfillment is a big part of why I'm married or I wanna have kids or I just wanna have a big family. And listen, those things will bring unity for a while, but one day 
you'll reach them or maybe you won't reach those things. And then what? And what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a goal for marriage that outlasts all the others that we might put there. Marriage is for this reason, to help each other become our future glory selves. That's it. That's why we're married, to help each other become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. Just like Jesus came and cleansed us to be able to stand before a righteous God, husbands and wives are to do the same for each other, to work at making each other holy and blameless. Um, several years ago, Amy and I got to go to uh, Rome. We were visiting some missionaries there, and it was a great trip. And one of the things we got to do was go to the Vatican, and we got to see the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta. And um, this is a sculpture that he did when he was 23 years old. And it is unbelievable to stand in front of and remind yourself, oh, that's a rock. Uh, it is that moving. Um, we didn't get to see it, but when three years later, when Michelangelo was 26, he sculpted his most famous work, which is David. And David is an amazing piece of, of sculpture. Um, it is seven, David is 17 feet tall. Uh, here's another picture to give you uh, some of the scale, uh, kind of a, an idea of the scale. That's a lady, you know, working on his forearm there. Um, David is carved from a single piece of marble, and the block of marble that was used to carve David was actually abandoned by another artist because there were flaws inside uh, the marble, and this other artist thought that the block was structurally compromised. Well, Michelangelo looked at the block and says, uh, I think I can do with something, I can do something with this, and I think it turned out pretty well because David has been around for about 520 years now, just fine. One art historian wrote about David this, to be sure, anyone who sees this statue need not be concerned with seeing any other piece of sculpture done in our times or in any other period by any other artist. What does that tell you? That in a lot of people's estimation, this is the greatest sculpture in human history. Right there, David. And when Michelangelo was asked, how did you do that? How did you carve this thing that was going to be, that's going to be known as the greatest human sculpture ever in, in history? Michelangelo says, said this. Here's how I carved David. I looked inside the marble and I just took away the bits that weren't David. That's rather simplistic, right? But it's true. And I want to suggest that that's Paul's instruction here. That's the goal for marriage. That spouses look into each other, other's hearts where, let's be honest, you're gonna see some flaws in there because you know there are flaws in your own heart. And despite that, you look at each other and you're going to say this, despite the flaws that I see, I see who God is making you. I see the bits that he's trying to chip away. And every so often I get a glimpse of what God is trying to do. I get a glimpse of that final magnificent finished product that God is making and it excites me and I wanna be a part of that. I want to help him make you into glory. C.S. Lewis said this, if we let him, 
God will make the feeblest and filthiest into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. And the process will be long. And in parts, it will be very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. God, through Jesus, is making us glorious. And husbands and wives get to help each other with the sculpting. So let's marry those two ideas, the, the idea of friendship and the idea of sculpting one another into something glorious. And let's say this, that we need to make our spouse our best friend and push them to love Jesus more than we do. The way that I phrased it is make your spouse your best friend and push them to love Jesus more than you do. And here's, I'm gonna give you a quick formula for that. It's found in Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. Paul writes this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so there's your formula. Speak the truth, number one, in love, number two, and in grace, number three. Harness the power of truth and love and grace. Truth, because nobody but your spouse will be more aware of your flaws. And give your spouse the right to talk about what is wrong with you. Give your spouse permission to tell the truth about who you are and about who they see that you could be. Alongside that, the power of love, because the power of love means that there is an ability from a spouse's perspective to affirm and to heal all of the deepest regrets in your life. That's a big, powerful statement, but it's absolutely true. Your spouse can look into you and see something that has been covered over by years and years of voices in your life, and you say, no, I can't, no, I can't, and your spouse is able to accurately look into your heart and say, no, you can. I can see it in there. I know you can do that. Yes, you can. That's the power of love to affirm and to heal all of your deepest regrets in life. And so use the power of love and reprogram him. Use the power of love and repair her and redeem each other with the love that you share. The trick is to keep those two intertwined and that takes the power of grace. It takes being very good at forgiveness. It takes us being very good at repenting towards each other. And it means that we have to get really good at telling the unvarnished truth to our spouse about our flaws and then completely and utterly expressing total forgiveness without an ounce of superiority or judgment because that's what Jesus did for us. I want you to go back to that uh, wedding picture that we started with. This uh, picture, um, we would say this, it's, I would say this, it's not downhill at all, Right? especially if you are committed to companionship and if you're committed to making each other your best friend, your special confidant, to partner with God, to make each other more and more beautiful. The rest of the world is going to see those two people wrinkling away and widening, (laughs) but with the powers of truth and love held together by grace, What those two people are going to see in each other is something 
more and more gorgeous. And someday, everyone will see it. And so maybe, maybe on our wedding days, when we stand and we hold uh, each other's hands and we make vows to each other, maybe one of the things that we should say, and if you're married, maybe you could say this today to your spouse. It wouldn't be a bad idea. Is this, you know what? Today we stand here at our wedding day and we are dressed to the nines and everybody is crisp and sparkling and glittery. But look, as great as you look today, someday, you'll stand with me in front of God in the same way as we're standing in front of people today. And on that day, because of what Jesus has done, we will be washed, we will have been cleansed, we will be beautified in such splendor that look that makes today's glitz and glam looks, look like we've fallen in the mud. And I wanna help you get to that day. We're gonna end our time today. Um, I'm gonna have the band come up and we're gonna end our time with a prayer time um, because I, I have given you some statistics along these four weeks about divorce rates and that kind of thing and, and they're, they're all over the map really, okay? Um, some say as much as 50%, but even if you go down to 20, you know, that's uh, one out of five. But I came across a statistic this last week. David McLaughlin writes a series called The Role of Man in the Family. And he reported a divorce rate that was not, not one out of two, not one out of three or four or five, but one out of 10,000. One out of 10,000 is the divorce rate for couples who practice one thing. And when I say this one thing, you're going to dismiss it. You're going to say, ah, I don't know. Okay, whatever. I've heard that. You're supposed to say that because you're in church. Well, okay. Listen, one in 10,000, even if he's only a tenth right, that's still one in a thousand. Okay? You want to know what it is? It's this. If a husband and wife will pray together, divorce rates go to one in 10,000. That's astounding. And that's worth trying, right? I mean, can we just put that into practice? And so what I've done in your bulletin is at the very bottom, I've written a prayer for you to share with your spouse, to begin to pray. And this will give you some hands and feet. It'll give you a way to pray without any pressure. Just, just read it together. Okay, and that's what we're gonna do as we close our service today. I'm going to pray a general prayer for all of our married people. And then I want you, if you're a married person, to spend some time silently praying for your spouse. And then we will read together what is at the bottom of your bulletin, okay? And if you're not married today, here's what I would love for you to do. Uh, I would love for you to actually physically go and be by a married couple and maybe put a hand on their shoulder. Or if you're afraid of that, if you don't want to move, if you're glued to your seat, I get that, uh, just stick out your hand, okay? And the prayers will shoot out your fingers to the married people. Um, you can do that as well, okay? Um, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have all the married people stand. If you're in different places in the auditorium, if you want to get together, that's great. Please do that. Um, all the married people stand. Stand. 
And if you're around them, would you um, put a hand or do some, come on up to the stairs. Yeah, that's, that's good. Okay, awesome. And uh, let me pray for us, okay? And then um, I will let you guys pray silently and then we'll close praying together, okay? God, we see Jesus making us glorious creatures by making himself into something no one wants to look at. And we get new robes because he got nails and he got mangled flesh. Through our friendship with our spouse, God, would you push us to take that kind of attitude, one of a servant, one of a helper, one who looks at the one we're married to and says, I will fill the void for you because that's what Jesus did for me. Would you help us to submit to each other in this way? Would you help us to push each other more and more into a relationship with Jesus? And it's in his name. So would you take some time to pray silently with your spouse? And if you're around a couple, extend a hand and would you pray silently for them? Now would you, with your spouse, pray this with me. You have to look at it in your bulletin and just uh, we'll pray together. God, you have called us as a couple to do for each other what Jesus did for us, that we would each give ourselves up for the other. We thank you that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means that you see us as blameless and holy even when we're not. God, we confess that we don't always show this same love for each other. Forgive us for not considering our own faults as more serious than the others. Help us to make each other glorious. Help us to tell the truth to each other. Help us to love each other. Help us to forgive each other, just as you have done all of those things for us in Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray.